Well, good morning, church. Um, how was Thanksgiving? How was that meal? You guys have a good time? Uh, I had a really good Thanksgiving. I have evidence that it was really good. I have evidence on my body that it was really good. I am, I'm not kidding you. I got on the scale the day afterwards, and I am four pounds heavier. And I'm thinking, what did I eat? I don't know what I ate. You know, was it the four extra helpings of stuffing or the chocolate pie? I'm thinking, no, that couldn't be it. Four pounds? So I'm okay. Remember, I've, I've lost weight and I threw away all my old clothes. So I have no choice but to uh, be good for the rest of the holiday. So you guys have a good up Thanksgiving? It was good? Um, <clears throat> yeah. My family, we also did Taiwanese hot pot, too. That, that explains the four pounds. And then we also did, like, American football, and it was, it was great. And, uh, but, you know, not everything was great over Thanksgiving week, right? I mean, not everything was great in the world. Not everything was great uh, around the nation. There was stuff happening in Ferguson that was not very good. And I'm just wondering if you guys were thinking, like, this week— when you're listening to the news and everything, I was wondering if you were wondering if we were going to address it this morning, at least for part of the message, kind of address it. And this is what I was thinking. I was thinking the church probably is not going to expect us to address it. Because in the past, when social issues have come up, to my own bad, I haven't really addressed it from the pulpit. And so there's a fair amount of conviction around this this morning, I apologize that we haven't really talked about social issues from the pulpit. And I feel like for us not to talk about it this morning would kind of be wrong. And I feel like it's kind of be wrong because if, if every time you open the news, they're talking about what happened in Ferguson and, and social media just lit up talking about what happened. But then you go to church and we don't talk about it. It's kind of sort of indirectly saying that the gospel is not relevant. And not only is that not true, the exact opposite is true. Not only is the gospel relevant to the racial divide in our nation, but it's actually the solution. So I'm coming up here wanting to at least pray about it. Uh, I I wanted to share a reflection that I I came across on Facebook. Uh, I've been doing a lot of reading about what happened in Ferguson, and this is simply the best reflection I have have, uh, come across. It was a Facebook post written by an NFL football player. You you wouldn't expect it to come there, but that's where it came from. Uh, It's from Ben Watson from the Saints, who's a tight end. And uh, he was expressing his thoughts and his feelings on Ferguson and the jury decision to not indict Officer Wilson and the subsequent violence that followed. And so this is what he wrote, and this is what I want to uh, read to you. I'm, I'm just curious, how many of you have actually already read this online? Okay, some of us have. He writes this as a personal reflection. He writes, I'm embarrassed because the looting, violent protests, and law-breaking only confirm and in the minds of many validate the stereotypes and thus the inferior treatment. He writes, I'm introspective because sometimes I want to take our side without looking at the facts in situations like these. Sometimes I feel like it's us against them. Sometimes I'm just as prejudiced as people I point fingers at. 
He concedes that he's confused why it's so hard for some to obey a policeman and offended why bad situations compel others to make them worse through racist comments. But then finally he writes this paragraph. It's so poignant. Listen to this. He says, I'm encouraged because ultimately the problem is not a skin problem. It's a sin problem. Sin is the reason we rebel against authority. Sin is the reason we abuse our authority. Sin is the reason we are racist, prejudiced, and lie to cover for our own. Sin is the reason we riot, loot, and burn. But I'm encouraged because God has provided us a solution for sin through his son Jesus. And with it, a transformed heart and mind. One that's capable of looking past the outward and seeing what's truly important in every human being. The cure for the Michael Brown, Trevon Martin, is not education or exposure. It's the gospel. Can someone say amen? And finally, I'm encouraged because the gospel gives mankind hope. Would you stand with me and let's pray. Now, Lord, we come to you as a God who has provided the solution for the problem of sin. Lord, your solution was in the death of your son. And through his death and resurrection, we have power to be forgiven and to forgive one another. God, you are God who exists as three distinct persons and And you are God who exists as one. And that is a mystery to us. And even in your very nature, there is unity amid diversity. And we as a nation, we need that unity amid diversity. So Lord, we we pray that you would bring healing to all those who are involved. For those who are feeling the pain of injustice, Lord, I pray that they would not be overcome by hatred, but they would have power from God to overcome evil with good trusting in you who said, vengeance is mine. Lord, we pray for Michael Brown's family, that you would comfort them with your presence. We pray for Officer Wilson, that he too may find grace that comes from you. Lord, we know that when the earthly courts fail, if in in this case they did, your heavenly court never fails. So what is up there, may it come down here. May you bring change to our laws, change to our system, change to social inequality, and most of all, change to our hearts. I pray these things in Jesus' name. And I want to give you guys 30 seconds. If you want to pray silently by yourselves, you can pray for healing for our nation, healing across the racial divide, healing across respective communities. Go ahead, and I'll give you like 30 seconds to do that. And we pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. You guys can take a seat. So today is the first day of Advent and we're starting a new series. We wanted to do something new this year and we wanted to do something new by actually going and doing something very old. So what I mean by that is we want to bring back traditional Christmas this year. Uh, The past several years, we've been talking about other things. But this year, we want to go back to those chapters in Matthew and Luke that really prepare the way before Jesus comes. 
And so by going through these, we're really hoping it's going to prepare our hearts as well. And so the name of this series is All I Want for Christmas. And of course, you're thinking like, all I want for Christmas, right? But uh, I think there's something about heart engagement and the preparation of the heart that's here. And so we're going to be looking at characters and how God was shaping their hearts and preparing them to want the ultimate gift. And so today we're going to talk about John the Baptist. John the Baptist, okay? Now, John the Baptist was a very interesting person. Uh, Not only did he sound like an Old Testament prophet, but he looked like an Old Testament prophet. Do you guys know the kind of clothing that John would wear? He would wear like um, camel hair, and then he would fasten it all with a leather belt. And his diet was, I mean, if you thought he looked weird, what he ate was also weird too. He would eat bugs, right? That was what he had for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It was locusts and wild honey. And um, the, the thing with John is that he had, he was a very special person. And, you know, I was thinking about his life and all the things that he stood for. And I'm thinking like, how can I put it in a way that the CLC crowd will remember. And so I kind of put it in a little mantra, something that I hope will stick. So could you guys stand up with me? So when you think about John, and you think about what he stood for, right? This is his, like, life mantra, okay? Now I put it together with hand motions because we're past the walk through the Bible. I know you've missed the hand motions, so I'm bringing them back, okay? Now the first one is... My life is not about me. So what I want you to do is, is point to yourself and say, my life, and you go, not about me. Now, this is the fun part. I want you to point to someone next to you, and you can do this with a little bit of attitude if you want. You can say, your life, and you say, it's not about you. Yeah, some of you are doing it really, really well. You're shaking the head. Right, that's good, right? Now, all of us go, all of our lives are about Jesus Christ. Okay, so let's take this from the top. Ready? My life, not about me. Now point yourself next to you. Your life is not about you. Our lives are all about Jesus Christ. Okay, give you guys yourselves a hand. That was really good. Okay, now, now, why did I pick that for John? You know, there was this incredible moment where, you know, John came first and he was baptizing a lot of disciples. And then Jesus came next. And it was reported to John that Jesus was baptizing more disciples than John. And it was reported to John. Now, I imagine at this moment, John might have, you know, he stroked his beard or something. He thought about it a little bit. And then he said these immortal words. He said, A man can only receive what is given to him from heaven. He must increase, but I must decrease. In other words, he was saying, you know, my life has never been about me. It's always been about Jesus. It's always been about glorifying him. I must decrease. He must increase. And that's the way he lived his life. Now, it was prophesied even before John was born that John was going to be a special person who had a unique role of preparing God's people to prepare the hearts of God's people to receive Jesus who is coming into the world. 
So would you turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3, and we're going to find out how John was preparing other people. And it totally fits with Advent. Advent is the time for us to prepare our hearts for Jesus. And John came preparing hearts for Jesus. So it totally fits. Would you turn with me to Luke 3, 7? John, he, he said, John said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. Now, I want you to think about this. These were his words. You brood of vipers. Now, you know something? Uh, we, we get on up here to say, like, community hello. You know, on's a really, really friendly guy. He's very, very warm. We, you know, and we want on to bring the warmth, bring the warmth of Christian love. Would you imagine on getting up here and said, good morning, CLC, you brood of poisonous snakes. Now, that's not very friendly. That is how John started. You brood of snakes, poisonous snakes. Okay, that's, a, that's, that's the Old Testament prophet coming out. Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Now right away, there is urgency to John's message. There is wrath that is coming. He doesn't water it down. Now, ever since the very beginning in Genesis, we know about this doctrine called the doctrine of judgment. And John does not downplay that. He's being real. He's saying, there is wrath to come. There is judgment. Uh, verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Now, if, if there's one big message that I want you guys to come away with today, it's bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In fact, can you repeat that after me? Bear fruit. No, I mean, repeat it after me. Let's try it again. <laughs> you have to say something after that. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So what does that mean? Well, repentance is a change of heart. It means I'm going one way, and then I have a change of heart. I do a 180, and I start going the other way. So it's like, okay, I'm going one way. My life is all about me. And then there is a conviction. No, my life is not all about me. It's about God. And I, I turn around, and I go the other way. That is repentance. My life is not about me. I'm living every day for the glory of God. And, and John is saying, bear fruit. Bear fruit with that. Go with that. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I imagine he might have said, don't say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Don't say that. I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I want to explain something. Uh, Back then, the Jews felt like they were okay. They were good. They were good with God. And if you were to ask an ancient Jew, like, why do you think you're good with God? They would say, well, we have Abraham as our father. And he had this amazing covenant with God. And we are heirs of the covenant. He's our father. He represented us. Now, John is, he's rocking the world. He's saying, don't say that. He's saying, don't say we have Abraham as our father. What good is it to have Abraham as your father but not have the faith of Abraham and to not walk in the way that Abraham did. 
That means nothing. You saying Abraham is your father, but you're not walking like Abraham, it means nothing. Look, he's saying, look, if God wanted to make offspring of Abraham, and you imagine he's in the wilderness, so there's plenty of like, these stones, he could raise these stones to be his offspring. He's saying, don't, don't say that. Now, if, if John were here at Christian Lehman Church, he's, he's looking at you guys, and, and you know, Christmas is around the corner, and this is John the Baptist. What do you think he would say? I, I think he would look at us, and he would say, look, some of you guys are saying, I'm good. Why? Because I go to church. Imagine John going to say, don't say, I go to church and so I'm good. What good is it for you to go to church but not have the faith of a believer? To not take that faith and act it out. It's good for nothing. Look, God can make stones go to church. I can put a, you know, a bunch of stones right here and they can be going to church. Right? What, what a radical message. John is saying, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you really have faith, it's going to show itself. If you really have faith, your life is going to have all this fruit. And it showcases the faith. Now, where is the faith? That's what John's saying, right? A radical message. Now, let me, let me say a little a bit where it's like, I, I can imagine my wife after like in the car going like, you know, Andrew, it's, it's Christmas time. You know, it's the most magical time of the year. There's like mistletoe and caroling. Why, why, do you, why are you preaching this, this, this sermon on repentance and judgment? Okay, can I just like blame John for this one? <laughs> can I do that? I mean, it's like, it's not like it wasn't my idea. I mean, I'm really looking at the beginning chapters in preparation for Jesus. And John was chosen to prepare the way for Jesus. And this was John's message. He's preparing. So... I'm doing the same thing because that's the scripture. Are we good? Randy, you're not going to give me that talk in the car? She smiled. I don't know what that means. John adds urgency to this message. He says, look, the axe is at the root of the trees. And every tree that doesn't bear fruit is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. This is an urgent message. This is an urgent message. Everyone in this room is going to be held accountable for everything they've done. There is judgment. There is a judgment day. There is a judge. And that judge is the Messiah, Jesus. Okay, now I imagine, like some of you, people are taking these words to the heart. And the earth is kind of being shattered here. And so, if this message was preached to you, what would be your question? You'd be like, Pastor Andrew, what are you asking us to do? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. What do you mean by that? What does that look like? What, do you, what, do you, what are you calling us to do? You just don't want us to feel bad. What are you asking us to do, right? That, that would be your question. Do you know that's what they asked? The crowd says, what, what then shall we do? Same thing. Like, can you be a little bit more concrete? Like, bear fruit in keeping with What do you mean by that? And so the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? Now, let me ask you, who is asking John this? And you guys say, the crowds. 
Okay? He's going to get a little bit more specific later on, like talk to the tax collectors, talk to the soldiers. But right now the crowds are asking him. So this is John's basic instruction for everyone, right? Okay, now listen to this. This, if you think about it, it's going to blow your mind, okay? It's going to blow your mind. Think about this, okay? He answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Now, let me ask you guys a question. How many of you guys would say you're pretty okay with math? Raise your hand. That's what I would expect from a room with mostly Asian people. That's a lot of people. Okay, now I'm going to do like math 101. This is like kindergarten math, okay? This is John's math, okay? So this is John. Oh, by the way, a tunic is the clothes that you wear inside. It's not the jacket, but it's the clothes that you wear inside. I think the closest thing would be like a long sleeve shirt, okay? John says, if you have two tunics... And you're, you're standing some, by someone who has none. You should take your two and give him one. And that way you have and he has. Okay, that, that's John's math. I, I know this is really difficult. Let me, let me try, try to break it down. So when you have two minus one is equal to one. Very good. And one... Out of two is what percent of two? Half or 50%. That is John's math. Is anyone feeling convicted here? (laughs) No, no, let me go a little bit further. Now, when you really unpack this, it redefines how much we should give and who's qualified to give. You really break this down. It redefines how much and who's qualified. Okay, now let's say I'm an ancient person. I have two tunics. What might be a reason for me to keep the second tunic? Actually, can you like turn to a neighbor and you're, you're an ancient person. I want you to think I'm like an ancient Jewish person. I only got two tunics. Why would I want to keep the second tunic? Okay, turn to someone next to you and share a good reason. Okay, okay, um, I'm pretty sure I like what Sherry said. I, I, can you say what you just said? You're already sharing up here, you're, you're on a roll. Okay, if, if one wears out, I got another one, right? These shoes, I love these shoes, I only wear these shoes. I'm thinking about getting the second pair because these are wearing out. I need to get the second one. Now, what about like when I put the first one in the wash? What am I going to wear? I want me to go around naked? Or just my coat, you know? No, I have a second one, so then I'm washing the first one. I have a second one to wear. That makes total sense, right? But what does it mean when John says, you got two? Give away one. That means when the first one wears out, I have to depend upon God to replace it. 
it does mean that when I'm washing, I'm not going to have a tunic and extra underwear. It does mean I'm inconvenienced and I feel like I'm sacrificing. So what is John saying? Give to the point of sacrifice. Give to the point where it's not convenient for you anymore. How many of you guys are giving so much that it's inconvenience in your lifestyle? Look, my faith in God, I, I love him so much. And there are these starving, hungry people. My faith is expressed in how I give generously. And I'm giving and I'm giving. And you know something? Sometimes I feel like it's inconveniencing my lifestyle. I'll give you an example. I just thought of it this morning. I was, I was thinking about this word. Raina and I, ever since we were married, we inherited a queen-size bed. It's good, you know? We, we love the bed, but it's getting worn out. My back's all out of sorts. And so now it's like the whole Black Friday thing. We are thinking of getting a new bed. But last night, Raina's like, what do you think about getting a king-size bed? Well, what about a king-size bed? Now, I, I totally would, but the king-size bed costs 400 more dollars. And if you get the king-size bed, then you have to get, you know, the mat, the, not the, 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 the cover that also needs to be king-size as well, right? And I'm thinking, you know... I don't know. Maybe we should get a king-size bed. But then I was thinking about this morning, like, in all our church among men, I think I'm like the shortest man in the church. Does anyone want to compete with me for that title? Okay, you guys are all like, no, no, Andrew, you get that. Yeah, I'm probably the shortest guy. Now, here's the shortest guy among a certain people group that are not known for their height. And I want a king-size bed? The problem is I'm not king size, you know? And, you know, I guess maybe, like, it's nice because you can roll around a couple more times before you fall out of bed. But would you pay $400 for that? Now, now listen, we haven't made a decision, okay? It's not like we've decided. But part of me is wondering, do I really need that? Can I kind of inconvenience my lifestyle a bit to make provision for people who have no mattress at all? I think I can. I'll give you another example. Our, our, our family this year, we're really trying to be anti-commercialism, right? So our family this year, we're making gifts for each other. We have a secret sand exchange with my brother's family. We're making gifts with each other. Raina's spending her nights like knitting the cap together. I'm going to work on a storybook that's the secret Santa that's quiet just between me and you guys. It's going to be a surprise. But we're trying to get away from the commercialism of the season. And today I was thinking, maybe the money that we would have spent on gifts, maybe we should spend that on people who lack basic needs. So we're living simple and we're giving more generously. It's not to the point of 50%. But don't get me wrong, John is not saying 50%. That's not his message. His message is a compassionate heart that gives generously to those who lack basic needs, even to the point of inconvenience, even to the point of sacrifice. Now, I want you to look at what's next. A tax collector comes to John and says, what shall we do? Now, look at how John responds. Then a soldier comes to John asking the same thing. Look at how John responds. Actually, look at what he doesn't say. What he doesn't say is go find a new profession. What he doesn't say is quit your job. 
This is to a tax collector. There are so many temptations around being a tax collector to take advantage of people. But he says, in effect, stay in your current job and do your current job unto the glory of God. Do you want to know what it looks like to bear fruits of repentance? You can do it in your current job. Now, for the tax collector, it's like, stop cheating people. Even though every, you know, all of your peers are cheating people, you don't cheat people, and you reflect the justice of God. But, you know, I mean, just think about this. People are asking John concretely, what does it mean to bear fruit? And John says, you can do it through your job, through your occupation, unto the glory of God. Do it unto the glory of God, like how you treat your boss. Like how satisfied you are with your current wages. What it looks like to be poised and content because you have God in your life. Show all your coworkers how awesome it is to have God in your life and how that changes the way that you work, the way that you're satisfied, your heart's position while you do your job. You can do it unto the glory of God. Last part. The people are very excited about John. There has been 400 years of silence the prophets of old were talking about an anointed leader of cosmic significance that's coming into the world. And then, 400 years of silence. And then, John comes on the scene. So everyone in the back of their minds was thinking, is this the guy? Is this the guy? This, this must be the guy. He looks like the guy. I mean, he's, he, he, he's, he's special. Verse 15. As the people were in expectation... And all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now what is John saying? Listen, my life has never been about me. It's always been about pointing the way to this person who's coming and his sandals. I'm not worthy to bend down and untie his sandals. Now, back then, they were not more sentimental about feet than we are. Like to us, feet, sandals, a muggy hot day, it's not pleasant. Back then, it's the same thing. John goes, I'm not worthy to bend down, smell this guy's feet, and unstrap his sandals. That's how great this guy is coming. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. There might be a question like, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. How is that going to be sustained for one's entire life? The answer, the Holy Spirit that this man is bringing. That is the power to actually bear fruit with repentance for the rest of your life. And this man is coming, and he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now listen to this part. Listen to this part. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now did you hear that last part? That was the last part of his message. He started the first part by saying, 
flee. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He's talking about judgment. Now he ends this by saying the, the Messiah, when he comes, he's, he's coming with a winnowing fork and he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff and the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. You cannot mistake such a grand emerging theme of judgment is in this message of John's. Now, now here's the thing. Here's the crazy thing. I was uh, thinking and meditating on John's word. The axe is at the tree. No uh, good, I mean, every bad tree is going to be cut down and thrown away. And the chaff would be burned with unquenchable fire. So we're thinking that when this Messiah comes, he's going to bring it. Right? That's what you would expect. And then you're reading further down in the book in Luke. Jesus comes. And you're thinking, he's going to bring it. And he doesn't bring it. Actually, quite the opposite. He's very gentle and humble and kind. And he's hanging out with people that no one wants to hang out with. And you imagine John going, what? I thought fire. Where's the axe? Where's where's the judgment? I, I preached on that and people believed me. Now think about this. And then John gets thrown into prison. John is thrown into prison and it's so unjust. He was doing the right thing and he's getting punished. Now he's on death row. He's about to lose his head. And he's thinking, what in the world happened? There's a great injustice. The people responsible are going to get their win over me. Here's the Messiah coming to bring judgment. Where's the fire? Where's the axe? Where's the unquenchable fire? I was thinking the same thing. Like, what, what happened to all that? So I'm reading the rest of the book. And I read the end. And all of a sudden the light bulbs go, goes on for me. I'm like, oh, there's the axe. There's the fire. There's the judgment. Where is it? All of that fire was placed on Jesus himself. All the judgment, the axe coming down, came on Jesus so that it wouldn't have to come down on us. He was cut down and thrown away, as it were, so that we would not be cut down and thrown away. He was tossed into unquenchable fire by being separated from his father so that we wouldn't have to burn with unquenchable fire. Don't you see that when Jesus came into the world, he came to die as a sacrifice for you and me. And that's why this Advent season just makes you celebrate. The judgment came down, but it came down on him so it wouldn't have to come down on us. I wonder if we talk about bad trees and the axe at the root of those trees and they're going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. And I wonder if anyone here kind of goes, you know, I just kind of feel like I would be cut down. Jesus was cut down on that cross for you so that you could be forgiven and go and bear fruit. And that is good news that makes us sing during this season. So would you stand with me and let's pray. Lord, we come once again amazed that you were born in this world 
to die, to take our sins in our place. That God would give his only son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. I pray that as a church that would never get old, that we would always be blown away by that and always celebrate God gave his son for us. I pray that we would live lives that bear fruit in keeping with repentance, different, full, passionate, generous, compassionate. Lord, may these scriptures in your word and your spirit continue to change us into being the people you've called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.